Welcome to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from the firm share their insights on developments shaping industries, markets, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing trends in the pharmaceutical sector. Uh, 2014 has seen a significant uptick in mergers and acquisition activity across the space, and an increased focus on R&D has produced some of the most promising new drugs the industry has seen in over a decade. To help us make sense of all this, today I'll be speaking with Jamie Rubin. Jamie runs healthcare research at Goldman and has been working in the field for over 20 years. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Jamie, earlier this year you predicted uh, in a report that it would be a very exciting year in the sector, and that's proven to be exactly right. Uh, explain to us a little bit what happened this year. Yeah, well, it has been uh, a very exciting year for the healthcare sector. In fact, this is the fourth year of consecutive outperformance relative to the market uh, for healthcare stocks. And pharmaceutical companies, which I cover, are outperforming, uh, again, four years in a row of outperformance. And really, there are two big drivers to that. Uh, number one is M&A. There's been a crazy amount of M&A activity in the, in the industry. There are companies that are breaking up, spinning out assets, but also companies that have made acquisitions, uh, tax inversions, for example, but also acquisitions of assets, um, et cetera. But at the same time, there's been a tremendous amount of exciting innovation, and that's really what's driving these stocks. Um, and we've seen activity across a variety of therapeutic categories. Most exciting, in my opinion, is oncology uh, and immuno-oncology in particular, which uh, has really been driven by the pharmaceutical sector. But there are other exciting areas of development too, uh, in infectious diseases with hepatitis B, with different vaccines, with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera. But it's been a very exciting year in terms of R&D productivity. Let's talk for a second about the cancer drugs, the new cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. um, for those of us who don't spend every day steeped in this, explain a little bit what immuno-oncology is and how it works. Okay, well immuno-oncology is, in my view, the most exciting development we have seen uh, in the cancer field in decades. And I think it will represent a paradigm shift in the way patients are treated with cancer. Uh, we're gonna, immunotherapy drugs will do away with chemotherapy over time. What immuno-oncology drugs do is that they actually target your immune system as opposed to targeting your tumor cells. So what these drugs do is that they harness or retrain your immune system to identify and target tumor cells. And we've seen remarkable results, especially in refractory tumors, such as lung, renal, melanoma, as well as many, many other tumor types, and results that are very striking, especially compared to traditional drugs. So one thing we do hear a little bit about these new treatments is that they're expensive. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. What's the likelihood mm -hmm. that over time the costs come down and, and what do we do with the problem of the issue around the high cost today? Right, that's a huge issue for the industry. Uh, but yes, these drugs are very expensive. Uh, there are two immuno-oncology drugs on the market today and they cost between $120,000 to $150,000 for a full course of treatment. And in fact, most of the newer oncology drugs, whether they're immunotherapy drugs or targeted therapy drugs, cost you know, between fifty dollars to $150,000 per treatment, which is astronomical, obviously. I do think that immuno-oncology drugs are able to get those kinds of prices because these drugs, for the first time, we've actually seen these drugs bend the survival curve. 
So a problem with chemotherapy and a problem with targeted therapy is that you see initial strong responses that the tumor reacts initially to the therapies, but then over time your body builds up a resistance. And sadly, over time, most patients die of refractory diseases. But what's so exciting about immuno-oncology is that we are seeing a subset of patients actually become cured of their disease. So the early data that we have seen, in fact, it's not that early, the data that we've seen recently um, shows much higher survival rates compared to chemotherapy or compared to targeted therapy because the immune system remembers. Once you retrain the immune system, the immune system remembers to fight off the cancer cells and that's why we're seeing these exciting cure rates in a subset of patients. So back to your question on pricing, payers are, have not pushed back on that high cost of drugs because the cost of a cure is priceless. And so far, these drugs have been very expensive. That does add the question though, what about drugs that don't cure patients? And I think that's where we're gonna see pricing pressure. Interesting. So new drugs have the potential to really revolutionize the sector. As of today, are they working for everyone? Is there right. Is Great there question. hope that they will eventually? No, they don't work for everyone, but they do work for a subset of patients. Let me give you the example of late-stage melanoma. If you were diagnosed with that disease five years ago, your chances of being alive over a one to two year period are only about 10%. But today with immunotherapy and especially combinations of drugs, and you combine two checkpoint inhibitors, we are seeing survival rates of over 80 to 90%. So that's really remarkable what we have seen, going from 10% of patients being alive after two years to now 88% of patients being alive after two years. That's in one disease. In other tumor types such as lung cancer or renal cancer or other tumors where we have seen data, we are seeing survival rates in the 25 to 40% range. So still a subset of patients, but much higher cure rates or much higher survival rates than we have seen with traditional therapies. So let's go back to the industry a little bit. You said a little while back that people had sort of lost faith in the ability of this industry to innovate. Mm -hmm. And these had just essentially been companies that were harvesting existing drugs and right. maybe looking outside their own four walls for growth. But it sounds now as though the research is beginning to pay off. And, and explain what happened. How did right. these old defensive plays, these mm -hmm. big pharma companies become growth companies? Again? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, really, it's happened over the last 10 years. Scientists have learned a lot about the human body over the last 10 years. The decoding of the human genome has provided a tremendous amount of information about your DNA and the makeup of your body and your different genes and how they interact with each other. So I think it's a combination of a number of factors. Number one, it's a better understanding of diseases, a better understanding of our bodies and our genetic makeup. And the FDA has become much more accommodative over the last, say, five or six years years, in large part because the data that we have seen for many of these diseases is so spectacular. Um, so I really think it's a combination of those things. And lastly, I would say the industry has become much smarter about what kinds of diseases they're targeting and the development and the design of their studies. They're moving away from primary care drugs and targeting more specialty biological drugs, so specialty diseases. So the sizes of the trials are now much smaller and they have tools to help them identify, select the right patients for these trials so that the likelihood of a positive outcome is much greater now. So it's really been a combination of all those factors that has led to improvements in R&D productivity. So as biotech converges with traditional pharma, let's right. call it, um, we've seen the valuations pop mm -hmm. and we've seen a lot of IPO activity and yeah. a lot of M&A activity. 
Are those trends going to continue or is this sort of a, a short cycle? I think the activity that we've seen will continue. And you're right to identify the fact that pharma is really converging with biotech. We've seen what we call the blurred lines thesis, that the industries, that the lines that used to distinguish between pharma and biotech are really blurring away. Uh, because these companies are the same. They're all focusing on the same assets. They're focusing on the same disease opportunities. And what the other point we have seen is that drug companies have gotten smaller and more focused. They've gotten out of some of the non-core businesses. Um, we've seen companies spin out their animal health businesses. They've been selling their consumer businesses, nutritional businesses. So they're now much more focused on innovative businesses and growth businesses. So they're starting to look, feel, smell a lot more like biotech companies. We think that activity is going to continue. I think there'll be more breakups. There are going to be more spin outs. There, there will be more M&A activity acquiring growth. Um, and I think you're going to see a continued convergence or a blending between the big pharma guys and the biotech companies. Let's talk about government policy for just a second. We're several years into implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and a lot of people thought it would stifle innovation and increase costs. And so far, and it's still kind of early days, we've actually seen continued innovation in the sector and, and reasonably stable costs. And we've seen a huge boom in really technological innovation. So what role does government policy play in the sector? Does it mm -hmm. matter? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and what should we be looking for going forward? The impact that we have seen from the uh, Affordable Care Act has really been on the utilization side. We've seen an increase in consumption of health care products and services. So we've seen an acceleration in prescription drug selling prescription cells. We've seen an acceleration in doctor visits, in elective surgical procedures, et cetera. So there are more people out there who are now using healthcare services because of the ACA. And that really hasn't had a big impact on innovation. In fact, it's had no impact on innovation. The companies have, um, you know, again, entered this period where R&D innovation is improving, and that hasn't had, um, has not been impacted by Obamacare or ACA. I do think that the government will play a role, though, and I think that over time, as the government becomes the, uh, a larger purchaser of prescription drugs, that the government could push back or mandate price controls. That hasn't happened yet, but right now, that the role that the government plays in terms of innovation is relatively minor. Um, you know, there is funding to some of the big government organizations like NIH and some of the academic institutions, but for the most part, the government has played a more minor role on innovation. Finally, we talked a lot about investor perspective on, on these developments. How about the consumer of healthcare? We're all mm -hmm. consumers of healthcare. How does someone who's not a specialist kind of keep track of innovation in a field that's moving so quickly, or do they? Uh, have to rely on their uh, on their healthcare providers. Well, a major trend in healthcare that's very exciting to watch is what I would call the consumerization or retailization of healthcare. Consumers becoming much more involved in the purchase of healthcare, um, and that's happening because we're seeing prices becoming much more transparent. And that has a lot to do with the ACA and that the individual is becoming more accountable for what he or she buys with respect to health care. With higher co-pays and higher deductibles, you're going to want to be a smarter shopper with respect to what types of health care you're going to buy. Insurance, what doctors you're going to choose, what hospitals you choose to go to. Um, historically, this has been an industry that we've had opaqueness in pricing. You have no idea what your procedure costs, how much your doctor charges. But I think that's all going to go by the wayside over time as 
consumers become much more, how they're going to have to foot more of the bill and then consumers become more accountable for what they pay for. Ultimately, that could lead to two things, lower prices, longer term, but better outcomes. Jamie, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. This concludes our inaugural episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.